I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, where we see this uh, picture of a clay in the potter's hand. Jeremiah chapter 18. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you that you are the potter and we are the clay. Lord, we pray that, that you would mold us and shape us, O oh God, after your will, while we are waiting, yielded, and still. Uh, teach us, Lord, through your word. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in grade school, I had uh, three favorite classes. Uh, one was lunch, one was FIED, and the third was field trips. Any of you identify with those three wonderful classes? Field trips, especially because you got to go out of school and sometimes you got to ride on a bus. And I never rode a bus. Some of you who rode a bus probably thought that's not much of a, a thrill, but we always walked to school. So field trips were always quite the special thing. Well, it's interesting. One of the ways that God taught Jeremiah or that God spoke to Jeremiah was what one author calls field trips. Interesting way of putting it. In chapter 5, he was told to walk through the streets of Jerusalem and take notes on what he saw. Sometimes field trip. You always had, to, always had to take notes, right? Hand it in your teacher. He was to look and see if he could find a man who does justice and seeks truth. Chapter 7, he was told to go to Shiloh and see what God did there because of the wickedness of the people of Israel. Here in chapter 18, then, Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house so the Lord could give him a message. God wanted him to see that what the potter did with his lump of clay is a picture of what God does with us. God is the potter. We are the clay. And when we understand this, it indeed will make a difference in how we view ourselves and, and how we view the Lord. He is the potter. We are the clay. And there are three lessons I would encourage you to note this morning. First of all, as clay in the potter's hand, we ought to rejoice in God's sovereignty. Rejoice in God's sovereignty. Notice verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house... And there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel. I want you to notice especially this phrase, as it pleased the potter to make. Now when you think of clay, clay is really a, a, probably a fitting picture of who we are because you go right back to creation. We were made from, Adam was made from the dust of the earth. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth. And that picture of dust or dirt or clay is one that really is, is, is found in many places in Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 14, For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure... In jars of clay, earthen vessels, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So if we begin thinking too highly of ourselves, 
Maybe we need to remember what we are. We are dust. We are jars of clay. God is the potter. We are the clay, and therefore we really have nothing to boast about. Clay is a fitting picture also because the potter can do whatever he wants with clay. Clay is pliable. A potter can shape it into almost anything because he has complete control over the clay. And really the same is true with us. God has both the right and the ability to do with us as he pleases because he's the potter. He's the one that's made us. We're just clay in, in his hands. And this is the obvious lesson that God wanted to teach Jeremiah because after he showed him this potter at the wheel, then we find this statement, verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of of Israel. Putting it, putting it into theological terms, Philip Riken puts it this way. He says, this is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Some people do not care for this doctrine. Others tremble at it. Some even try to oppose it. But it cannot be denied. Human beings are not on equal terms with God. He is the creator. We are his creatures. God is the absolute sovereign. All others are totally subservient. Then he quotes from Isaiah 45.9. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? And what's the obvious answer to that? Of course not. Those of you who have formed, uh, worked on a potter's wheel, did the clay ever say to you, What are you doing? Why are you making me this way? How ridiculous of a thought. And it's intended to be ridiculous because it's just as ridiculous for us to say to God, why did you make me this way? Who are you to fashion me? God says, you need to remember, I'm the potter and you are the clay. Now, if you look at verses 7 and 8, you will notice how the Lord applies this truth. He says, then, at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring to it. So here's the application then. Since God is a sovereign God, He has the right to relent from bringing calamity when evil men repent. And it doesn't matter how evil they are. We have an example of that in Scripture, don't we? When Jonah was sent to Nineveh, right? Capital of Assyria. What were the Assyrians like? They were about the most evil people that the world has perhaps ever seen. And I could read to you from history some of the things that they did, but it's almost too gruesome to mention here today. They were evil people, but when Jonah went and he preached to them, what happened? 
They repented of their sins. And what did God do? He relented from bringing judgment upon them. And Jonah didn't like it, did he? He pouted. He was waiting. He was watching the city, waiting. Perhaps God would change his mind. Maybe God would really judge them after all, even though they had repented. And he was so mad that God showed mercy on the ones to whom he preached. It almost seems a little strange, doesn't it? I mean, if I preach here this morning and, and someone was saved and I was standing at the door and I was saying, boy, I hope they were judged. Why did they have to repent? I mean, that, that, that was the attitude of, of Jonah when Nineveh repented. Our sovereign God can do with the nations of the world whatever He wants to do. If an evil nation turns to God, He can remove His hand of judgment from them. And the same is true with individuals. Remember when, when Saul of Tarsus came to Jesus? <laughs> You talk about an evil man who was leading persecution against the church, but God met him on the road to Damascus and his life was transformed. And we ought to rejoice in that. Rejoicing when a sinner comes to Jesus, no matter how sinful, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil, or if a nation turns to God, we ought to rejoice in God's sovereign work to bring such people to Himself. So as clay in the potter's hand, we rejoice in God's sovereignty. The second lesson we learn here as clay in the potter's hand, we ought to respond to God's warning. The warning that God gives in verses 9 and 10 is very clear. And it's really the opposite of what we see in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, we saw that God has the right to relent from bringing judgment when evil men repent. Here we see that God has the right to bring judgment when men turn away from Him and turn to evil. Look at verse 9. Or, here's the second application, or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. In other words, God has a right to remove His blessing and to bring judgment upon those who turn away from Him. Verse 11, we see the application then. He applies it to the people of Judah. He says then to Jeremiah, So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. What was God going to do? Fashioning calamity. If you look at all the prophecies of the Old Testament, it is probably a reference to the Babylonians. That God was going to raise up the Babylonians against the people of Judah and He would use them as His instrument of judgment. God would discipline His people by raising up the Babylonians. That's the message that God gave to Habakkuk. Remember the prophet Habakkuk? If you're familiar with that book, 
there is this ongoing dialogue back and forth between the prophet and God. And he begins by looking at his people and saying, Lord, you need to do something about the evil that's going on in, in, in my land. So God says, okay. And here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm going to do something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. What was that? Behold, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And you know what Habakkuk's response to that was? That ain't right. God, how could you do that? They are more evil than we are. How could you use them to discipline us? What is God's answer to that? I'm the potter. The clay. How can you say to me what I ought to do? I am the potter. You are the clay. When God warns, as He did here, we have to respond to that warning. If those who turn away from God are warned that judgment is coming, we better take heed to that warning, right? If God is the potter and, and we are the clay. But notice how the people of Judah responded to this. Quite amazing if you look at verse 12. God says, I'm going to bring calamity against you. But verse 12 says, but they will say it's hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Isn't that amazing? God says, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. You need to repent. Judah says it's hopeless. We're just going to follow our own ways. We're just going to do whatever we want. We're just going to turn away from you. We're going to live the way we want. And we don't really care. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We live in a culture today that is really like that. God's Word warns very clearly that judgment will come. And what do people say? We don't really care. We are just going to live the way we want to live. We don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what God says. That's what the people of Judah said. And God describes their turning away then in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, who ever heard of something like this? The virgin daughter has done a most appalling thing. Verse 15, my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths to walk and bypass, not on a highway. They have rejected the true and living God. And instead they worshiped idols. This isn't the only time that Jeremiah mentioned this. If you go back to chapter 2 and In Jeremiah, verses 10 to 13, you find this. He says, Cross to the coastlands of Kittim and observe. And send to Kittim and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? 
But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is saying, you know what, Judah, you've done something no, no nation has ever done. You have forsaken the true God for worthless idols and you have done it in spite of my clear warning. And they would pay a price. Verse 16 says their land would become a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and they will shake their head like an east wind. I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. That's a pretty severe warning, isn't it? You don't ever want God to turn his back on you. But that's what God said to the people of Judah. You sniff in my face and you say, we're going to do whatever we want to do. God says, I'll turn my back on you. And when God turns your back on you, that's judgment. And that's a very clear warning. And I can't think of a, help but think of our nation today. We have responded to God's word like the people of Judah. Will there come a time when God will turn His back on us? If so, we'd be in trouble. We don't want God to ever turn His back on us. We must heed the warning. The warning is very, very clear. As clay in the potter's hand, we need to respond to God's warning. Turn back to Him. Repent of our sins and, and seek His face. The third lesson we learn here, as clay in the potter's hand, we ought to respect God's messengers. We know what the people of Judah were like, so we can predict the response to Jeremiah's message, they weren't going to like what Jeremiah had to say. We find in verse 18, then they said this, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come on and let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. So Jeremiah is the messenger. He gives this message from God. He warns the people. And they say, let's, let's, we're not going to listen to this guy. We don't need to hear what he has to say. He's not the only one that speaks for God. We've got the priest. We've got the law. We don't have to hear what he has to say. Let, let, let's attack him. Let's, uh, let's deal with the messenger that God has given and if you understand and read through the book of Jeremiah, you know that he was lambasted for his messages. He was thrown in a pit. He was beaten. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. 
In fact, if you look at chapter 20, you see a couple examples of that. Verse 1, when Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. Go down to chapter 20, verse 7. He says, I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me, the word of the Lord has re- resulted in reproach and derision all day long. When people don't want to be confronted with their sin, you know what they do? They take it out on the messenger. It wasn't Jeremiah's word. This was God's word. But he was the messenger. He was the spokesman. And so they got angry with the one who delivered God's message. You ever done that before? Got mad at the messenger? Ever stormed out of church some Sunday and say, who does that pastor think he is? Huh? Or if someone confronts you about something in your life, you think, who does that person think they are? You get mad at the, the messenger. It's easy to do that. But if you're on the receiving end, it isn't a fun thing because Jeremiah says, Don't, do, do give heed to me, O Lord. Verse 19, listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they've dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf, so as to turn away your wrath from them. So here was Jeremiah. He was interceding for the people. And they got upset with him. And he comes to God and says, Lord, I've spoken your word. I've I've proclaimed your word to them. And this is all I get. So you can understand what what Jeremiah was, was feeling. All I do is get grief. All day long. They mock me. Verses 21 to 23, I kind of wonder if, if Jeremiah had had enough and he reacts with very strong emotion. Quite a statement. He says, Therefore give their children over to famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword. And let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death. Their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders upon them, for they have dug a pit to capture me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight, but may they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. (laughs) Probably not the best thing for a prophet to say. But if you put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes and here you are just trying to be faithful to God, you're proclaiming the word and you're mocked and laughed and beaten and thrown in a pit. Finally, what does human nature say then? Okay, God, just just judge them then. Just judge them. You deal with them. I've dealt with them long enough. Now you just deal with them. So you can sense the, the, the emotion that has probably been building up for, for who knows long. I think Jeremiah prophesied, what was it, 40 years? Can you imagine going that long? and So he had had enough. 
Thankfully, the story doesn't end here. Because we know the people of Judah experienced the discipline of God. They had been in Babylon for 70 years. But God did not give up on them. He brought them back. And we go back to verse 4, and, and, and this is pictured there where Jeremiah was watching what was going on with the potter and the clay. And the clay that was spoiled, verse 4 says, it was remade into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. And I think what was being pictured there is that God would remake this people. He would bring them back from captivity. They had been marred. They had been disobedient. They had been unwilling to follow God's will. But after the 70 years in Babylon, the nation was remade again. They came back and rebuilt. The wall had been broken down and the temple had been destroyed. But they were remade. And God wanted Jeremiah to see that. That in spite of all the sin of the nation, that God was going to remake them. As a potter takes a vessel that was marred and he takes the lump and he makes it beautiful again. Philip Riken says, we need to be created all over again. Which is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a sinner who trusts. In Christ, he makes him or her into something useful and beautiful. If you know Christ, then you are a memorial to God's patience and long suffering, his careful use of material and his power of making something out of failure. And who among us has not been a failure? But God can remake us. Just as He did with this people that was so disobedient and so rebellious and basically just thumbed up their nose at God. They were remade. And that's the beauty of the Gospel, isn't it? That in Jesus Christ, we can become new creatures. Remade. Formed in the likeness of His Son. As we put our trust in in Jesus. So this morning, are you willing to trust the potter? Do you believe that he knows what is best for you? Do you understand that he can remake you? He can fashion you into what he would want you to be? It isn't always easy to be clay in the potter's hand, is it? Not always easy. But we can trust that the master potter can take our lives that we have marred because of sin. And he can make something beautiful of it. Adelaide Potter describes what ought to be our desire in this way. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Lord, you are the potter, we are the clay. Mold us today. Shape us. Remake us, O God, into what You would have us to be. Help us to heed Your warning, Lord. 
not to turn from you, but to turn to you, that we might experience your wonderful work of salvation and that wonderful work of sanctification as you continue to shape us and mold us into what you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.